Okay, everybody, let's uh, continue on together. Good to see all of you at King's Church, and let me add my welcome to those of you who might be new or here for one of the first times or uh, looking into all things church and faith, maybe. Why have you here? Really glad that you are here. I'm Philip, and I'm one of the pastors, and we're going to be continuing a series that we started kind of well, this is part four, put it that way, of a series called Spotlight, in which we are shining a spotlight, as it were, on the character of God each week. And I'm just kind of, I suppose, wrestling in myself, because I've got quite a lot of stuff to say, and I also, I totally concur with what Anna was saying in terms of, I feel like God wants to kind of minister to us and get to work in us through worship or, or sung worship as well, so I want to make time for that. Um, and there's like a place I want to get to, but some stuff I need to get through. For, not get through, but I'm just, hmm. So I'm going to pray. Is that all right? Yeah. Lord God, I pray that you'd help. Thank you that you love to speak through your word. Um, and I thank you so much that you began to work in us as a community in those past few minutes. And I pray that you'd keep doing that in these few minutes. Help me to be uh, in tune and in step and in line with and filled with your spirit so that we can really encounter you through what I say and through what we get to, how we get to respond. I pray that anything that is just not for today is left to one side and what is for today, for these people, for this church, for this time would come through. Amen. 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 Do you want me to keep pressing on or do you want me to change anything on the... Okay, brilliant. Um, I'm going to read you a passage of scripture, and I think in it you will see the clue, or you may see the clue if you are particularly observant or a scholarly type, you might see the clue as to this morning's attribute of God that we're going to focus on, and uh, if you don't, that's all right, because I'll tell you what it is afterwards. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 23, we are in, and the context for that is that this is the first church in Jerusalem in the first century, they have just experienced kind of their first sort of Buffett, really, because two of their leaders, Peter and John, who've been uh, kind of successfully preaching the name of Jesus and seeing God do amazing things in Jerusalem and seeing the church explode, have had a bit of uh, resistance. And Peter and John have been hauled up in front of the local authorities and warned very severely, stop what you're doing. They've been given a real threat as to what they are trying to declare and do as a local church. So they're pretty shaken. So they go back to their church and they basically have an impromptu church prayer meeting. And we join them as such in verse 23 of chapter 4. When they were released, they being Peter and John, they went to their friends, the church, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them, which was, stop what you're doing. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, let me just pause there, so they're praying, essentially they're praying, God, we know that through David a thousand years ago, who wrote Psalm 2, we know that by the Spirit you were speaking through David these words. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they continued to pray. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And they keep praying. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit 
and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Question, did you notice how this church began to pray in responding to a threat? Did you see how they started their prayer? Did they say, dear Lord, you know how scared and upset we all are. You probably are too. Nope. They started off by praying, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Is that how you begin your prayers when you're faced with resistance and threats and challenges? They declare this morning's attribute of God right from the outset, which is the sovereignty of God. They declare the sovereignty of God as the first thing they do in their prayer, the God who made all things, who is in control of all things, who rules and reigns through all things, and who guarantees that he will accomplish his good purposes and plans through all things. That's the God to whom they begin praying. The sovereignty of God. And yesterday, I'm sure many of you would have watched the royal wedding in which the grandson of our sovereign was married. So what does it mean to be sovereign? What does the sovereignty of God specifically mean? Well, A.W. Pink, who, was a, who wrote a classic book called The Attributes of God, uh, which I recommend to you in the first half of last century, he wrote this. The sovereignty of God is the foundation of Christian theology. It is the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped. It is the golden milestone to which every highway of knowledge leads and from which they all radiate. It is the cord upon which all other doctrines are strung like so many pearls, holding them in place and giving them unity. It is designed as the sheet anchor for our souls amid the storms of life. The doctrine of God's sovereignty is a divine cordial to refresh our spirits. In other words, It's a big deal, it's huge. What you believe, or whether you believe, that God is genuinely in control, that there is nothing that happens outside his sovereign purposes and plans, outside his instruction or his permission, and to what extent you believe that humans have choice and responsibility within that orbit affects everything. What you believe about the sovereignty of God, if you're a Christian, it affects how you pray, as the early church demonstrate. It affects how you suffer hardship, as the early church demonstrated. What you believe about the sovereignty of God affects the way and the passion and the peace with which you make known the name of Jesus Christ to your city, you don't know it, as the early church in Acts 4 demonstrate. And if we were to read verses 32 to 37, we would also see that what you believe about the sovereignty of God affects how you love and lead and disciple those within the local church. So for them, it affected how they prayed, how they encountered and suffered hardship, how they made the name of Jesus known to their city who didn't know it, and how they loved and pastored each other. It's a big, big deal. The sovereignty of God, what you believe about it, affects everything if you're a Christian. And if if you're not yet a Christian, if you're looking into these things, what you believe about God will surely form the basis of whether you choose to choose or reject him. So we need to know what's God like in order to, to come to him. So, Let me look at it like this. The sovereignty of God affects the knowledge in your head, the condition of your heart, and the power of your hands. In other words, what you think, how you feel, and what you do. And my heart is that the Holy Spirit would be at work amongst us in these next few moments. Not just that we might know truth, that's really important, but that it might actually affect the condition of our heart. Because what we do needs to come really from from what's in here, not just cognitive knowledge. 
and the wonder of the Holy Spirit has already been said in worship. And as you can see in this passage, he comes alongside to bring power to our hearts and to our hands. That's what I want to try and get into in these next kind of 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes or so. Number one, the knowledge in your head. In other words, what does the sovereignty of God mean? What do you need to know? I'm going to look at it in four components. This is how theologians tend to kind of divide up the sovereignty of God, or at least the theologians that I trust, (laughs) because the sovereignty of God has been quite a contentious issue over the last uh, couple of millennia. But we can be confident that we understand it at least through uh, what the Bible tells us. Number one, the sovereignty of God is to say that, that God preserves all things. So it has to do with preservation. Verse 24 in Acts 4, sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Which is, so preservation means not only did God make all things, his sovereignty means he preserves and upholds all things. Hebrews 1.3, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, speaking about Jesus, in him all things hold together. So the reason the universe continues to exist, not just the reason it does exist, but the reason it continues to exist is because the sovereignty of God preserves it and actively ensures that it is so. So everything that is still happening from the breath that I take through to the sun continuing to shine and burn, All of that continuing to happen is because the sovereign will of God ensures that it is so. So it's to do with preservation. Number two, the sovereignty of God has to do with guidance. So did you see, I tried to explain in verses 25 and verse 27, the church, this first church, they know their Bible. So when they start praying, they just naturally pray scripture out. And they were basically praying Psalm 2 in order to say what recent events have also proved. So Psalm 2, written a 1,000 years ago, before they were there. So they're praying, God, we know, you've, you've said it a 1,000 years ago, people will always do things in opposition to what you want to do. We know that from the, from the word of God, Psalm 2, a 1,000 years ago. And they say, we know it from recent events, because Herod and Pontius Pilate did all they could to crucify Jesus. So they're saying, we know that people have always tried to, in different ways, oppose the purposes and plans of God. No more dramatically so than in killing Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then they see something fascinating in their prayer. They say, all of that was actually so that, verse 28, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, not only does God preserve all things, he guides, he actively steers all things in the universe to fulfill his purposes, even when the very opposite seems to be happening. So God's not just preserving the universe, he's sovereignly guiding it to ensure that it does all that it needs to do to come through to his full sovereign purposes. Let me give you a tangible example to kind of ground the knowledge stuff. Uh, It was great, wasn't it, to have John here two, three weeks ago to speak. John and Sophie, our dear friends who've planted a church in Istanbul. Well, John didn't share that morning what he uh, did share in the evening at the prayer meeting and had shared with me before, which was that in April, a bunch of us who were on his kind of email list got an email saying, um, could you please pray? Because he said, back in November of 2017, we had a knock at the door in our, at our church from the police. This is not the first time that's happened. And the police wanted to come in. They weren't really happy with what we were doing as a church. They wanted to look at some things, take some reports, make some notes. And they told us that a report would be produced, he said, in which it's likely that you will be deemed to be acting in a way that is contrary to the constitution of the country. And he was saying, can you please pray? This is back in last month. Because that report's about to be issued. 
by the Deputy Governor of Istanbul. So a bunch of us prayed. And I don't know about you, but where did I go when I read the email? I went to Acts 4. <laughs> that was the obvious place to go to in response to that uh, prayer request. And then a few days later, John emailed again to say, great news, amazing news. The Deputy Governor of Istanbul has sent us a decision. He's ruled that actually what we've been accused of is entirely false. The church is doing all that it needs to do. It's entirely in line with the Constitution. We're totally released to continue doing what we've been doing which is a wonderful answer to prayer. And the reason I tell you that in this context is partly because it's just a great answer to prayer, but also because you can see the sovereign guiding hand of God at work bringing his purposes to play. In fact, you could say that John and Sophie are now in a better position than they were before the police came and investigated them. Because now they have an official document from senior authorities in Istanbul saying these guys are released and commissioned and authorized to do all that they're doing. So any more kind of, if you like, threats that come their way, they have something they didn't have before, which is an official thing to say, we are all good. And they have a church that's freshly encouraged by answers to prayer, and a church that's freshly emboldened to make the name of Jesus known to their city. God's worked his purposes through what seemed to be the opposite of those things taking place. Because he's sovereign, because he guides, not just because he preserves. God is sovereignly guiding all things, nations, rulers, police forces, authorities, history itself, to his ultimate ends, which is to build his local church and make the name of Jesus known to every tribe and tongue and nation. Number three, the sovereignty of God has to do with something called concurrence. So God guides, God preserves, something to do with what's called concurrence. Because many people have asked the question, hang on a minute, Maybe you're asking this. Hang on a minute. If God is so sovereign over all things, nothing happens outside his will or permission, are we therefore kind of all robots? Are we just effectively programmed to do exactly as the sovereign God has predetermined and therefore without choice or responsibility? And the answer is no. Because the Bible clearly teaches that we have both choice and responsibility as human beings. We have a choice and responsibility in how we live in general terms, we have a choice and responsibility in, in specific terms and whether we choose to respond to and put our trust in Jesus or not. Our prayers, are, 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 we're told, are effective, can move the hand of God. And the Bible also teaches that God is sovereign over all things, including man's responsibility. So how does that work? How do we have choice and will and responsibility and God be sovereign over and above all things? And it's been a big debate in the church over the last couple of thousand years. I'm not going to go into the various theological camps that have formed in answer to this question, but suffice to say that we as a church hold a position that, as best to my knowledge, we've always held um, and that is in line with the family of churches that we belong to and, more importantly, is in line with our best understanding of the word of God, which is summed up in this word, concurrence, which is to say that God's sovereign will and man's free will are able to run alongside each other at the same time. In other words, God sovereignly preserves and guides through the unforced activities of man, as well as through the laws of nature and so forth. How does that work? To an extent, it's a mystery. 
but also I think we can, we can grapple with it and get our head around it. And I'm gonna use a different way of thinking. Those of you are like, enough words, <laughs> enough terminology, give me an image. Okay, here's an image to try and think about this. I've stolen this image from uh, someone called P.J. Smythe, who's a, a part known to us as a family of churches, a bit of a hero of mine, leads a church out in America. And he used this image to kind of helpfully sum up what we're talking about when it comes to the concurrent component of God's sovereignty. And he put it like this. So I'll read out to you what he says this image describes. Somehow, man's responsibility is not compromised by falling within the greater orbit of God's sovereignty. He says this, I actively strive for a sufficient grasp of both truths. In my heart, mind, and actions, I always allow man's responsibility to be subordinated to the loftier truth of God's sovereignty by a small but definite margin. I think is really helpful and biblical analysis. And it's particularly helpful because if you don't do that, if you allow yourself to swing one way or the other, then I think not only do you get into an unbiblical territory, you get into a really unhealthy territory because if you say, go to, a, to one way, next image please, and you, end up with an, you could end up with an overstated view of God's responsibility and an understated view of man's responsibility. And occasionally, the church has drifted towards that way, where you overstate one and understate the other. And you can probably imagine, or maybe you'd experience what that leads to, if you overstate God's sovereignty and understate ours, you kind of get a bit of passivity, really, a bit of timidity, even a kind of fatalism, a sort of shrugging of the shoulders, oh, well, what will be will be, which I don't see in Acts 4, do you? There's no passivity and fatalism in the way in which they grab hold of the sovereign God in action and in prayer. So we mustn't overstate the the sovereignty of God and understate man's responsibility. But neither, next image, must we understate the sovereignty of God and overstate the responsibility of man. Because, and again, you can probably imagine or maybe you've experienced the consequences of that. If you reduce the primacy of the sovereignty of God and inflate the responsibility of man, you end up with things like drivenness and reliance on self and maybe kind of legalism, a sense of we need to do it and if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. And that's not a healthy place to be either. So if we go back to PJ's original image, I think it's just helpful to ensure that we have an accurate and a healthy understanding of what the concurrence of God's sovereignty looks like. And then I think we are healthy, peaceful, and dynamic Christians. And we have a healthy, peaceful, dynamic church. We don't swing one way towards passivity, and neither do we swing the other way toward drivenness. If we, have a, uh, if we sit within God's sovereignty, that's the primary governing force. And man's responsibility is significant and genuine and authentic, and it sits within God's sovereignty. Then I think we have something healthy, peaceful and dynamic that you see in Acts 4. So what are we saying? Stay with me. God's sovereignty, number one, preserves all things in their existence. Number two, guides all things towards his purposes. And number three, it runs concurrent with man's free will, whilst also underpinning it. Number four, God's sovereignty also has to do with his benevolence which is really, really important. By benevolence, I mean the goodness of God. Did you notice how the church in Acts 4 are clearly convinced of the goodness of God? 
They're convinced that he's going to continue to bring about his good purposes. You can tell that by the way they pray. They're convinced that he's going to stretch out his hand to heal, verse 30, you know, to restore the, the, the earth. They're convinced and they experience the Holy Spirit falling on them to bless them, to empower them with boldness. Verse 31, it's really important that God is benevolent, utterly and purely good. If God is not supremely good, if he's not loved to his very core, as we heard last week, the core of the Trinity is love. If he's not utterly and perfectly good, then his sovereignty is hard to trust. In fact, it's frightening to a degree. But he is good. He is love. He is light. 1 John 4, 16, God is love. You can trust his sovereignty. 1 John 1, 5, he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He cannot misuse his sovereignty in any way because it comes from a pure light and love. That means that in all things, even the very worst of things, Romans 8, 28, God is capable and willing of working good for you. In all things. Which has raised another question, which is not unreasonable either. If God is only good, and if he is sovereign in control of all things, nothing happens outside his sovereign will, then how do we explain the presence of so much evil? People have asked that question. And again, that's a, that's a huge debate around that. You could do a whole sermon series around that. I'm going to do it in 30 seconds. <laughs> in simple terms, God does no evil. The Bible is so clear about that. God does no evil. And at the same time, there is no evil that he cannot use to still bring about his good and perfect purposes. It's a theologian called Michael Eaton who puts it like this. And he's not just making this stuff up. This comes from a scholarly sound appraisal of scripture. He says this, God stands behind bad things in such a way that evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to secondary agents. God relates to evil by temporarily permitting it and yet at the same time controlling its manifestation so that it does his will, not its own will or Satan's will. That means, or that raises the question, does God permit even the very worst of things? The answer is yes, he does. And why is that still good news? Why is that still good news? Well, think about it. If that were not true, what would God and reality look like? If that were not true, then there would be some things taking place outside of the orbit and reach and control of God. There would be things happening where God would have to say, I'm done. That's, that's too much for me. He would essentially cease to be God were he not either causing or permitting everything to take place. So it's good news because it means that he is genuinely God. And it's good news to you personally in another way because it means that Romans 8.28 is true. Because if there were things outside the remit or outside the, 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 the arms of God, Romans 8.28 would not be true because there would be some things that God couldn't work together for your good. Imagine that. Imagine Romans 8.28 with a caveat. All things, apart from the very worst of things, I will work together for your good. So you can live in Romans 8.28 because... 
There is nothing that God does not sovereignly cause, allow, or permit. That means he can cause and permit everything to still work together for good in some extraordinary way. Pause. We're filling our heads with knowledge, and I believe it to be necessary knowledge. What about the conditions of our heart? How are your hearts doing at this moment? Which is more than just how do you feel. It's what are you experiencing in your soul, in your spirit. Some of you might be thinking, yes, sound doctrine. Some of you might be thinking, yes, sound doctrine, but I, what, but, 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 but. That's okay to an extent. You, you join in with a long line of people who've said, yes, but, but, but. So we need the Holy Spirit to make this truth live and to, and to ensure the conditions of our hearts are healthy. That's what God wants for you this morning. He wants doctrine to cause your hearts to live, to you, for you to live in purpose and in freedom. So that's what I've been asking the Holy Spirit to do this week with me, is to, is to help my heart be increasingly transformed by what's going into my head. And that's what I've been praying for you. Maybe you can pray that now if you're finding this Good, hard, easy, difficult, anywhere in between. At the end of this message, that's what we'll do. We'll do what the Acts 4 church did when they prayed to and encountered the sovereign God. And I'm really glad that it came through in worship this morning. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to come. He may or may not shake the room. I don't know. But we're going to ask the same thing. Holy Spirit, God, sovereign Lord, come by the power of your Holy Spirit. When I've been praying this week about that, asking the Spirit of God to cause the knowledge to shape and condition my heart in, in line with who God is. He's done three things in, in me, and I hope and pray he might do those things in you. He's made me uh, more in awe of God, increasingly humbled by God, and more secure in God. And I pray he'll do that for you right now in these moments. He's made me more in awe of God. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 to 11 goes like this. This is God speaking through Isaiah in the Old Testament. I am God and there is none like me. Why? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, (laughs) things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. To think that God has always known everything that has happened and will happen brings me to awe. Well, the Holy Spirit helps me, helps that truth to bring me to awe. To think that every single event of history, every birth, every death, every rise and fall of civilizations and empires, every royal wedding, every fall of every sparrow to the ground, Matthew 10, God's known about in advance. To think that before there was even a beginning of the universe, before the foundation of the world, he looked down the tunnel of time and he knows how the story will end and he knows every chapter along the way. He doesn't look down the end and see the, and see the result, even that would be amazing, and say, well, now that will pan out. He knows. He's sovereign over all things, through all things, preserving the universe, guiding everything that happens somehow according to his ultimate purposes of renewing this world with the goodness and glory of heaven. It brings me to awe. And secondly, it also brings me to humility (laughs) 
And if you were here last week or you've caught up on the podcast, we looked at the Trinity. And uh, we had Professor John Lennox via video <laughs> saying essentially this, that even the great minds of science, and I think he's up there with them, don't fully understand things like consciousness and dry energy, dark, dark energy even. They don't fully have an explanation for it. So is it really a surprise that there is mystery at the heart of God? So I've been praying this week what I prayed when I spoke last week, Psalm 145, verse 3. I think it's just live with me in a different way now. The psalmist says, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, i.e., what I know, what I see is amazing. Lord, I love you, I praise you, I want to live with you. And then without even pausing for breath, in the same psalm, the same verse, he says, and his greatness is unsearchable. For him, there's no contradiction. What I know, I praise but there's plenty I don't know. And we have a kind of tendency to say, well, what I know, I accept and understand and I can adhere to, but what I don't know. But the psalmist says, essentially, God, you're great. And because you're God, there are things that I don't know because I'm not. Makes us humble. I don't understand fully how concurrence works. I don't know why God permits awful things to happen. <laughs> I can't even uh, conceive of how he could work good from some of the worst things. But that's good, he's God, <laughs> and I'm not. It's because he's infinite, and I'm finite. Tim Keller, who hasn't been quoted for whew, at least three or four weeks. He says this, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he, doesn't, because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you also have, at the same moment, a God great, sorry, then you also have, at the same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. If you have God who you hold responsible for all things that happen, if you have a God like that, then you also have a God who knows things that you don't. And we need a God like that. We don't want a God who's in our image, who fluctuates with the ups and downs of life and culture and time and history. We want a God who to some extent is other and for me at least, it brings me to awe and humility. Number three, it also brings me to security. It gives me awe, gives me humility, and it gives me great security. And I pray it would for you right now. Charles Spurgeon, another hero, 19th century, said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I lay my head at night. The sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I lay my head at night. Why? Why did he uh, go to bed each night? And man, he had some, read about Spurgeon, he didn't have an <laughs> easy life. He had some ups and downs, suffered from depression for, amongst other things. Why did he lay his head on the pillow at night in rest and in peace and in security? because specifically 
of the sovereignty of God? Well, I don't fully know because I can't ask him, but I can speculate for these reasons. Because he knew, and if you're a Christian, you know, that he and you were chosen for salvation. So if you're a Christian, the reason you're in the family of God is yes, because you chose. And if you're not yet in the family of God, you have a choice to enter through repentance to and forgiveness from Christ into the family of God to take your seat at his table. But that choice that you make, that either we have made or that you are invited to make this morning, for which we're all responsible, sits within, remember, the greater orbit of God's sovereignty, i.e., Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, I'm paraphrasing here, he made a choice. I want you in my family. And it's so good to sit there. If you think ultimately, I did the right stuff to enter through the gate into the kingdom of God, that will leave you either prideful or always slightly doubting because it's on you. But if you know that God before there was even a universe and was even time, made the decision, I want you uh, in my family. Then you can lay your head on the pillow at night. You're adopted because you're wanted, chosen, marked out, not because you snuck in or because you did some good stuff. Number two, for being secure. It means no prayer. There's no prayer that God cannot answer. Which makes you secure. There's no prayer which has reached the heavens and God goes, ooh, a bit beyond me that one. And this makes me secure and humble. There is no answer to your prayers that is not ultimately good. Whether that answer be yes, no, wait. You should lay your head on the pillow at night having prayed, knowing that whatever answer he brings has to be ultimately good. Why? Remember, the benevolence of the sovereignty of God. All things he does come as a result of his perfect goodness. There is no darkness in him. There is only light Think about it. If God were not fully sovereign, prayer would be a dangerous occupation. Think about it. Because God might answer in ways that did not ultimately turn out to be good. Because he is sovereign, there is nothing he cannot do. And the Acts 4 church grabbed a hold of that. And so did, obviously, did John and Sophie in Istanbul. And because he is sovereign, there is no answer that he brings that is not for your good. Both and. So Romans 8.28. I would encourage you to live in that verse if this stuff is hard for you. Whether it's hard or not, live in this verse. In all things, God works for the good and only the good of those who love him. Do you believe that? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Jesus said, I'll send the Holy Spirit who will remind you of truth and will fortify and encourage and bring you into all truth. So the sovereignty of God, when the Holy Spirit brings it to life, at least for me, bring awe 
humility and security to our hearts. And I want us to worship. So maybe I should just stop speaking so that we do that. Maybe the band could come and join me to at least encourage me to stop speaking. But number three, very briefly, very briefly. Not only did the sovereignty of God bring knowledge to our heads and change the condition of our hearts, it brings power to our hands. You can see that in Acts 4, can't you? They don't say, Sovereign Lord, intervene in this situation. Well, how does it finish? They continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They went out. But in between praying to and encountering the Sovereign Lord, as I believe we are doing right now, and leaving the local church prayer meeting to go and make the name of Jesus Christ known, what happened? The Holy Spirit came. He fell. And they knew that's how it works. You you don't lend the, the work of your hands to the activity of faith without your hands being freshly filled, as it were, with the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I'm so encouraged uh, that Jason and Anna and Ross in different ways were talking about bringing something of the Spirit to the life of this church in these moments. And actually next week we'll take a bit of a pause from this series and we'll be talking about Alpha specifically. Which for me is a, a tool to help us make the name of Jesus known to our town and our city. And it can be a very effective one. And in some ways, it's not a break from this series. Because my prayer and heart is that the more that you encounter God, the more that you know Jesus Christ, the more that it makes, the more that it's, it, it's the, the, only, the only implication is, is to make him known. So I think it's quite good that we should take pause from knowing God, focusing our eyes on God, shining a spot on the character of God to say, well, if God's like this, then I want to make him known to a city and a town that is perishing without him. So we'll do that next week. But as I say, notice, this church did not leave their prayer meeting until the Holy Spirit came. And so why don't we just stand and I'm going to pray And we have some time to worship and to invite the Holy Spirit to not to fall afresh because he's been here the whole time, but to remain with us, to work in hearts, to cause us to hear from God afresh. Come and do what you've been doing so far and share with Anna and I if you want to bring things that God's saying. It was great last week when we just waited on the Holy Spirit. People had their lives changed because of what was being spoken. Wonderful that I remember Catherine responding last week to what Becca was saying. Lives spoken into because of the voice and heart of God. Let's expect that to happen. Let me pray and then stop talking. Lord God, sovereign Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The one who is sovereign over all things. Who knows all things. Who can work good in their lives of those that love him through all things. We say we trust you afresh this morning and we ask you to cause the spirit to fall on us afresh. Whether you shape this theater in dramatic fashion or whether you very quietly and softly and tenderly just rest upon individuals, we say come. Help us to trust your sovereignty afresh. Help us to hear from you afresh. 
change the conditions of our hearts. Give power to our hands. Amen.